Welcome to the Organizing Ideas Podcast. I'm Allison. And I'm Karen, and we are two new librarians and archivists and your hosts for this podcast. Together, we're taking a closer look at the relationships between organizing information and community organizing, how libraries and archives are never neutral, and what we mean when we say that knowledge is power. We are recording on the unceded and ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Today, our guest is Andrea Lemoines. Andrea is the community organizer at the Free Library in Philadelphia and an asset-based community development practitioner looking to support communities in preserving their local memory institutions. She is currently enrolled in the Masters of Library and Information Science program at Clarion University of Pennsylvania. And we're really excited to talk to her about her work in community organizing, uh, community archives and professionalization and white supremacy and Afrofuturism. It's a good episode. Yeah. Have fun listening. <laughs> so, Andrea, you're the community organizer at the Free Library in Philadelphia. So, mm-hmm. um, mostly been interviewing a lot of people from Vancouver, and I think our listener base is mostly people in Vancouver. Um, can you tell us about Philadelphia and like what is the free library? Is it the public library? Because I remember when I first went to Philly in the summer, I was not sure why it was called like the free library. Yeah, that's a question that everyone asks. So I'll give you a little bit of background of Philadelphia and then I'll go into why it's called the free library. So um, Philadelphia um, in American history, it is one of the oldest cities um, in the nation. It was the city where that was the center of the revolution. So it was the nation's capital during our revolution from the English. Um, so like the, our constitution was written here. There's a lot of American history is based on battles and political decisions that were decided here in Philadelphia. So that gives you kind of kind of a background to it. You know, people come here to visit the Liberty Bell. Um, William Penn was you know a founder and designed the city. The city is based on I want to say. Versailles or a part of Paris, the way it's designed, like we're twin cities. Um, so you see a lot of that, like the way the design of the city is and how old it is. Also, just as you know, just to kind of give you um, some background on where I work at, like right now with the city, um, Philadelphia is the sixth largest city in the United States. It is about 1.6 million people. I want to say it's about 43% Black as well. So there's a large Black population in the city. It's about 34% whites, and then you go down like Latinx, Asian API populations. Um, the reason why the free library is called the free library is because the history of libraries in the United States. Um, one of the first libraries that was open was here in Philadelphia by Benjamin Franklin, but it was a club. And so you actually had to pay to have access to the library. And so people would um, brought their books together, old rich white guys brought their books together, they'd share their books, share their knowledge. And for people who wanted to join the club, you had to pay. And so when public libraries actually began founded in Philadelphia, um, people put the term free in front of it. So they knew that it was actually open to the public and you could come and you didn't have to be a member. So free library still sticks. People know that like this is not we're not going to charge you. This is open to the public. This is your library. You can come in. So that kind of gives you a background to like the city, kind of the general population makeup right now and also why the library is called the free library. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Um, So what do you do as the community organizer for the library? 
Oh, that's a very good question. As far as I know, I've asked quite a few people that I work with and um, people in this library system. The group of people that I work with are really the first real community organizers hired for a library system in the United States. Of course, there's librarians who do community outreach, but we are not librarians. We um, really focus on doing community engagement in the library. So the vast majority of my job is really being a connector for um, our public libraries in Philadelphia are drastically underfunded, which I think is just a general issue with most public libraries. Mm -hmm. um, our staff is really spread thin. And so my job technically is with the Free Library of Philadelphia Foundation. So there's a foundation, which is a nonprofit that is a fundraising arm for mm -hmm. the public library. And so they're actually able to get grants to help support different positions. So my grant, my job is, and I think all of our jobs as community organizers are grant funded. And so we support um, library staff in building relationships with community. And my goal is really to focus on equitable relationships. Uh, there's a lot of people with privilege who come to fundraisers and sit on boards and like have a lot of say so in how the libraries are run. So my job is to make sure that the people who live in the community around the library and actually visit the library have a say so and have a voice in the library, like what kind of programming, how it's run, what the priorities are. And I really um, focus on building, like help strengthening relationships with different nonprofits and community members with library staff to make sure that the library is um, community led in its decisions and in its programming. Does that make sense? That totally yeah. makes sense. And I, <laughs> it's the first library that you know of in the U.S. with community organizers. I've, I haven't heard of anywhere in Canada where that's a thing here. Oh, I was going to ask. Yeah, it's really like community library and community-led libraries kind of thing. Um, there are some places where I've seen that those postings um, make the MLIS like the librarian degree training sometimes optional or like a preferred thing. So maybe they hire people in who aren't librarians to do that kind of work, but no, nobody who's a community organizer. And um, do you want to talk about the difference between those two things? Uh, like oh yeah. Difference between a yes. community organizer and a community librarian? Yeah. So from what I understand, actually in my master's program, my first class, I actually was, I'm talking with someone who is a community librarian. Uh -huh. And even though I understand that they're really focusing on community engagement, I think it still has a lot of, in my personal experience, it still carries a lot of the settler baggage that is very prominent in library staff and kind of what you're taught in library school of, um, I have this education, I have this know-how, this is kind of what I think is best for the community where coming as a community organizer, I don't have that at all. But as a community organizer, I, and also to the side note, um, I come from a union organizing background, which the vast majority of my coworkers do too. So we just come with a very different power dynamic. Like we see power dynamics much more clearly and that's a big part of my job. So I would say the biggest difference I think is viewing what the power dynamic is and how it can be shifted. So where, you know, I respect staff is amazing. They do a great job. Staff is also community. There are also people living in neighborhoods with their local library. And how can we make sure that staff and as community and community's voices are actually prioritized over the typical status quo of I'm an academic. Um, I've done all this studying and I know what's best for you. So I think the biggest difference is really just like my job is actually to break down the status quo and actually have community-led voices 
um, outside of the institution instead of supporting the goals of the institution. That is like, and I'm also too, like, have y'all worked or had any like, you know, like really worked more in depthly with librarians who were um, community engagement librarians? Like what's your experience with that position too? Cause I'm curious to hear that. Yeah, I don't actually work in that position. And my background before library schools may be more similar to yours in that, like I was involved in organizing a union in my past workplace, mm -hmm. other kinds of community organizing. And that was for me also like uh, avenue into um, deciding to go to library school and work in libraries that I've graduated and I'm working in a public library that is really trying to shift towards doing community-led work I am seeing the gaps between these two things much more clearly <laughs> than I did when studying or thinking about this as a more abstract thing I might do can you talk yeah. a little bit about some of the challenges like between community organizing work and community librarians like what is the communication between the two well, I think maybe if I can rephrase like your question. So I haven't had that much experience working with community engagement librarians. We don't really have them on the staff that I'm, we don't have them at, on the staff that I'm working on. So maybe are you asking maybe like, what's the difference in communication style between this like a librarian or like, a general public librarian in the community or? Or like, could you talk about like maybe your relationship with translating your work to say other librarians at the free library you're doing community work, you're organizing, you're, you know, building relationships. It sounds to me like you go back to the library and that's where the librarians are doing their work. How do you interface? Something? Yeah. Do you oh, yeah, that, I, that makes sense. Cause that is, I think, um, a pretty big issue. So I will say that there has been, to be honest, like there has been a lot of pushback on the community organizers within the institution. It hasn't, been this like, you know, wonderful, oh, we're welcoming it. Like, so we got hired for these grants to actually do this work, but it's actually, it's, it's very new to the library profession. I think trying, and the language is very different, right? So like what you're saying, so I'm talking to community. I will say this, I am blue collar, middle class. There's a certain language and a certain, like, even like aesthetic to just being, you know, being who I am. And the people who I work with in the community, um, which typically in Philadelphia, Philadelphia is the has the highest level of poverty of any large city in the United States. So when we're talking about those class different, we're talking about like racial differentials and class differentials. It's a really tough interface to be like, hey, community really values this, right? Like this is what they value. This is what they say they want. Between when you go to an academic setting where people are like, well, statistically, this is what this community needs, right? <laughs> yeah, so there's, there's two completely different things that are happening. Also, when we talk about, like, I want to hear your experiences, too, like with working in a library that's trying to be more community-led, because one of the issues I find in the interface is, like, say I go out in the community and I hear that there's a wonderful person on the block who's been helping people write their resumes, right? Like, People are like, oh, my next door neighbor has this talent and she's on this resume and I'll be able to get this job and da da. And I'm like, that would be something great to bring to the library. Like, here's a community member who has this talent who understands like what jobs are available in the neighborhood, has been shown to help their neighbors out. However, this person doesn't have the correct credentials, right? They might not have like this wonderful resume and the credentials that the library staff thinks that makes you qualified to actually run a program or teach a class on how to help someone with their resume. So that is where 
I feel like that's where the interface and the communication has been very difficult and there's been a lot of pushback on because it goes back to something that, you know, like we talked about a lot in the class we had this last summer, Karen, was that professionalization. Hello, um, this is Karen from editing. Andrea is referring to a week-long course that we both got to take through the Rare Book School in June 2019 in Philadelphia. The course was called Community Archives and Digital Cultural Memory, facilitated by Bethany Novisky, and I will provide a link to the reading list, which will also be available in the transcript and show notes. All of the readings should be available in open access, but send me an email if you can't access any of them, and I will see if I still have the PDFs on my computer. Um, I definitely <laughs> did not read all of the readings because there are very many, but it is so good. I will say that the Rare Book School is very expensive. There are very generous scholarships, which is I, I got to go. Um, so if you were very interested, I would look into those scholarships and um, that you can apply to go through. And I admit when I took the, when me and Karen took that uh, rare books class, I admit I was blown away. I don't think I quite understood when we were questioning professionalization of what that meant. But now that I'm like in school and I've been trying to talk to other people doing community archive work and really talking more in depth with librarians of what, what that means, I think I didn't realize how much that was a class barrier. Like saying, like talking about professionalization in the library industry. Yeah, it didn't occur to me like that class difference was really what was butting up against each other. And now I see it. And so I don't know if I really have an answer to your question, like how that works, but I can just say it's been really difficult trying to communicate back and forth and make these connections. And I think what I've been trying to do is really build strong and honest relationships with staff in order to bring them along. Yeah. Because that's what's going to change. Because community is great. This is my thing. Community is always great. It isn't the community that's any kind of issue. It's the institution that's the issue. It's the institution that has the issues and needs to change and adjust. Right. Yeah. So I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> no, but I think that, that was um, really interesting. Thank you. Yeah, to bounce off that, because you're asking, like, what's it like in a library that's trying to move towards community-led work? And I think that's exactly the same tension around, like, the institution and what its role is in the community. Because similar to you, I think of community organizing, it's, like, explicitly political. You're analyzing power mm -hmm. relationships. You're strategizing. You're advocating for social change, right? You're, like, pushing against racism and classism and sexism and all of those kind of things, whereas uh, <laughs> like libraries are, at least the way that public libraries are structured here in BC is that they're like very much state institutions, right? We're funded mm -hmm. by the And although many librarians individually are people who may have a power analysis or like a personal idea of what they think social justice is or something like professionally are so com so committed often to this idea of neutrality that that it, it creates a lot of tension and I think that that's something that I'm feeling myself and watching colleagues struggle with like going and doing com or trying to do this community-led work is that like for example the city that I work in one of the big issues is that 
there's a housing crisis and there's a lot of mm-hmm. development in that city and gentrification and the demographics are changing really drastically and people are being pushed out of their neighborhoods and are organizing to fight against that. To me, like as a, if I was a community organizer in that city, that would be like a thing to work on. Uh-huh. Power relationships but the library isn't really there. Like the library doing community-led work is more like, okay, like how can we host a debate about the housing crisis or Mm -hmm. like create dialogue or offer people resources for finding housing, stuff like that. And, And those things have a place and it's important to have conversations as a community and things like that. But it's very different than a community organizer responding to gentrification and a housing crisis. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I, I mean, yeah, I, we could talk about this forever because that is very much um, like our role as community organizers. I'm one of six on yeah. the team. Our jobs are extremely like our jobs are completely political. Like yeah. our job, they, they hire these very political people to work in this system that has been trying to be, you know, we're open and free for all. It's, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know if I've ever heard people at the Philadelphia lab, like in this library system refer to being neutral. Mm-hmm. But I hear people trying to be like not biased, and, yeah. a, and they use that in a certain term. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, but that's not what's happening in our community, and that's not what our community wants from this space. So it's like, how can you actually? And it's not so much frontline workers. A lot of times when I say staff, it tends to be administrative, like higher ups who are really disconnected from what's going on at the community, like branch libraries. But yeah, that's the struggle. The struggle is. And even within that, it's class. It's yeah. people who don't live in these neighborhoods, who don't have the same struggles as other people and trying to get them to actually see how other people are struggling with their lives and have empathy is a really big challenge. You know, so it's just like all the issues that we're having politically in real life, it's just like the microchasm is at the library. Totally. So this job that I have, it's really, it's difficult to walk that fine line but it's also very rewarding to see when things shift and when things work. Yeah. So, yes. So it's, it's a tough position. And I think it's also to um, one of those things where institutions tend to want to make like a quick, easy change when this is a very long term, deep, like it's not wide, it's deep. Like this is a long term, deep institutional changes. That the community and the community organizers, I think, have only been working for the free library system for like three years. So mm-hmm. it's just, and I don't know how long they plan on because we're grant funded. So I don't know how long these jobs are going to go. Could you like talk how long we'll be here? But yeah, it's just it's it's long term work. Could you talk a bit more about that? Because I remember when um, I met you in the summer, you I think you said you had just started in your position like a year or two ago. And I think you said you were on a term, if I remember that correctly. Yes. Is is that still the case? And like, how is that a challenge for working? Because, yeah, like you said, it is a very long term thing. It's not like, oh, we'll just slap a bandaid on it and then it'll go away. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, that's part of the challenge, too. So I am. I think they switched me onto a different grant. So starting in April, I'm on a three-year grant. Um, so I so I believe that's April 2022. So yeah, so a big part of my job, and I don't mean, no one has explicitly said it, but I just, I see the value in this work, is how do I take the work that we're doing that is meaningful and impactful for community members and institutionalize it? 
So that is where I feel like the relationships, building relationships with staff, like frontline staff, is really important. Because how can we make this work sustainable past whatever grant funding or whatever this position is? I'm really lucky the direct staff that I work with. So I have a specific area. I work in Southwest Philadelphia. So a little bit of background about the free library, too. It's, we live in a large urban city. So there are 54 locations, 54 wow. branches. Yeah, it's impressive. It is large. There's a lot of people, there's a lot of moving pieces. And so in order to make it manageable, um, the administration broke it up into what they call clusters. So it's pretty much neighborhoods. So places that have similar like geographical areas. It's like pretty much kind of naturally how the city's fairly broken up anyway, how people would break up the city. So I work in Southwest of Philadelphia. The staff that I work with is extremely, they're just dedicated to this work. They're very much dedicated into um, being community-led and into community engagement. Quite a few of the library assistants um, live in this area. Like they are able to walk or easily take a bus to work. So for them, this is this is personal work as well. Like you're living and working in the same neighborhood. So I personally have a lot of support. So I am working with the leadership in my cluster in my area and how we can make certain programs sustainable. So for instance, we have this one program I'm working at at this one library, Pascalville. It's through an IMLS, that's the, so it's a, it's a federal grant here in the United States, and it's the Institute of Museum and Library Services. They provide a grant at this library that I'm working at, and it literally is for us to do the um, asset-based community development. So we are actually looking at how all the amazing things going on in this community, and building on that instead of building on what typically are seen as needs and negatives. So we have these um, story circles that we've been working on where we have themes that are suggested by community members and we invite community members to come out and just like share their stories with each other. And so it really is just like a community building practice and people love it. It's very beloved. And so we're trying to figure out how we can like take this, something that I'm doing with this grant and build it into the programming and cultures of the library where we have funding and it's sustainable and train staff on how to do it and facilitate it and lead it. So that's just an example of things that we're trying to do to make it sustainable, but that's a huge question. I mean, that's really up in the air. And unfortunately that's a huge problem with grants, right? So all these foundations and different people jump on these bandwagons and it sounds really great, but it's just like, this dumping and leaving in a community is not like really like long-term investment in a community. So I think that's a whole nother conversation yeah. <laughs> to be had about the nonprofit industrial complex. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it also <laughs> with the conversation we've had on the podcast before about precarious work and yes. Well, and I can only imagine that the kind of people working in the community organizing positions, like you're saying, are people who are coming from lived experiences who are like perhaps more marginalized in certain ways than like the library staff's whole and are being put into these short-term positions instead of mm -hmm. roles, which is another problem to have. Yeah. Like it's similar in some ways to the diversity residencies we were talking yeah. about, right? Where like an mm. institution to do community-led work at this moment in time and they hire in people who are really good at doing it, but not with no security long-term. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a really big issue. I mean, when we look at, I don't know what it's like in British Columbia, but here, I mean, and this is all things you can, you can look at, there's lots of newspaper articles about what's going on with the library system in Philadelphia. Yeah, the more sustainable, steady work tends to be given to higher paying work tends to be given to white women. 
Yeah. They're the ones with the steady employment. Mm-hmm. Part of the precarious nature also maybe relates to, like we talked about professionalization and like accreditation and, mm-hmm. um, you know, having that master's degree, which is already, you know, a huge barrier. It's a lot of time. It's yes. a lot of and I think even people being aware that, you know, it exists and that it's an option. That's another thing. We talked about professionalization in that community archives class of our books and you're you just finished your first term right with the mm-hmm. yeah do you want to talk a little bit about, about you know how that experience was or if that's changed or any like thoughts you have now that you've started it yeah um library school is not I know people are like don't call it that I'm, I'm gonna call it that library school is, <laughs> yeah, is it's very interesting it's not what I thought it was going to be, if anything, I got a lot of warning. So I will say there are quite a few black female librarians that I work with in the system who have just been so caring and so supportive. Like I can't even tell you how much I really appreciate them with my job and really care for them. And um, everyone that gave me advice to go to library school and the school I decided to go to is, a, I'm, I'm also a state school person, no offense to anyone listening about private schools, but I believe in public schools and I believe in state schools. So that's just my personal value system. So I will always go to public and state schools. But when I started like my, I, I'm, I'm going part-time because I, I have to, I live under capitalism and I have to work full-time. So that's all I can do is go to school part-time to pay the bills. And my first two professors were are POC, they're people of color. And I told my coworkers, they're like, that never happens. What's happening in library school? Like, where are you going? <laughs> And I w- I've been very surprised. I I was prepared for just lots of whiteness, lots of like blandness. Here's here's how you're a librarian. And to start school and to have one professor. And also to just give you a heads up, I'm online. So I think it changes the dynamic. If I think if I was in person in classes, I'd, I'd probably hear a lot more responses or see a lot more responses. But for one professor to straight up be like, no question, we're using everyone's pronouns and respecting everyone's gender in this class. And I was like, oh, I'm down for this. All right, let's do this. And not one peep, no one said anything, not one pushback, not nothing. But I think it would be, but a pushback would be written form, like it would be in a text or a chat. So I think everyone was like, people were too scared to push back on it. But everyone has been doing it. People are just like, no question. We're going to respect everyone's pronouns, gender, no questions. And I'm like, this is great. Like, I didn't think this is what I have in library school. And they have another professor you know, talk about how capitalism commodifies information and how do we as librarians discuss that with patrons who are looking for information, say not at the library and there's all these paywalls and all these barriers to actually accessing information. And I'm like, let's also have a discussion about that. We had a great discussion in class about how the profession perceives us librarians as being these wonderful angels of information when libraries historically and this in nature very much pick and choose what information people have access to. There's this this myth of this free access and resource to important information that you need. How it's a myth and it's not really true. And like, how can we actually advocate in our everyday lives to address boundaries to people 
who are racialized to people who are maybe like differently abled, like how do we make sure that everyone actually has access the information that they need? So it's been an eye-opening experience. It actually gave me hope. I didn't go in with that much hope to library school. And so now I'm full of hope and I feel like I picked the right school for me. So it's a really good fit. So yeah, so this is a, this is a shout out to Clarence University. And then <laughs> that's what this is so far. It's been great. Amazing. Uh, my advisor is also, she's an older white woman and she's been really hearing me talking about working with, um, I'm specifically focused on black people, descendants of enslaved people in the United States with community archives. Like that's my focus. And she has been wonderfully supportive and completely understood every place I was. Like I was talking to her about Afrofuturism, you know, Rashida Phillips from our class, Karen, and she was on it. She's like, oh, I love her, all these things. I'm like, oh, this white girl's like on it. This is so great. So I've been really happy with my school. I was very shocked. So yeah, so school has been really interesting. Although I did just last month, I, I initially went in with a focus on archives. And just last month, I decided to drop it. And yes, and it was because that's when it hit me, Karen, like all those conversations about the, prof the professionalization of the field and how that could really affect community archives. Because I was, I, I tried to volunteer with a few different groups in Philly who said that they were, you know, inclusive and they were fighting like white supremacy in their archives and they were supporting black lives. I tried to like volunteer or get involved with them and every group was led by white, cis, hetero women who were extremely fragile and did not want to change their practices to fit the communities they said they were serving. Every single group. And I was like, I am not getting into this. This is not what I'm choosing. This is not what I want. When I, on the daily basis from work, can just go to different community meetings and work with wonderful, beautiful Black community members who are already doing the work, who already have their own systems in place, and just need space to do what they need to do when I know I can provide that for them as a public librarian. Like, I know I can do that. So I'm just like, why am I going to try to learn like this white supremacist system when there's people already out here doing the work? So that was a big change for me. And I, I give it that class was now, I, it was one of those things where months later, I'm like, oh, I get this from that rare books class. I get what was happening. I truly get how deep that conversation was, which I didn't at the time. And I am choosing not to engage with archives, not in, at, on that level, in that white professional level, not in that, not in that way. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah. That was really yeah, cool. I, I mean, any thoughts that y'all have on that or I'm curious to hear like what your experiences are, but I just like, I'm in Philly, there's a large black population and I'm just like, you white women do not want to engage. You say you do, but your actions show that you do not really want, like they don't want to be in other people's time schedules. They want things to look a certain way. There's only a certain kind of materials that they want. And I'm like, black communities really focus on like oral history. And I'm like, if you're not down for oral history, you're not down for community archives. Like that's just, like they're not willing to meet people where they're at. And so I'm curious about your experiences with that too. I don't, have very many experiences with community archives but I do find with archival studies I think this is maybe also just the struggle with being a student and entering the field and not and just learning about the field and kind of realizing oh this is what it is and um 
Allison and I both started with the dual archival studies and then the library degree. They're two separate, mm-hmm. both of them. And we both started with archives together. And then when we switched, when we next term we did libraries, this one, Allison, <laughs> decided to stop it. And I'm sticking it out. But Allison, you want to talk a bit more about it? I really relate to pretty much everything you're saying. Um, okay. <laughs> I'm not black, but um, I also came in with a real interest in community archives and, and felt that the way archival studies is being taught in our program is just like, yeah, definitely very Eurocentric, super focused on the written record, extremely mm-hmm. narrow-minded and prescriptive in terms of how things are done and what kind of experience and knowledge is validated. And yeah, and, and I felt similarly that I felt like there's actually a lot of space within public libraries and libraries to do mm-hmm. more community-based work and libraries also have like a lot of that history and a lot of those problems but I find libraries and librarians it's more open to at least I think considering reconsidering you know more traditional ways of thinking I found that with archival studies like it was for me it was really hard to challenge because I just didn't really know anything about it like it felt Mm -hmm. off but also for me, coming to graduate school, I'm very much taught to respect authority and not mm-hmm. to, and especially like being a first generation student, it's very much like, oh, I just have to really appreciate being here. And, mm-hmm. but I think like Allison, you said, like there's so much focus on the written record and so much of my undergrad, I think was built on how do I be a real English major and how do I for me, I, I do think the two professions also have a different attitude to being questioned and to people asking questions. Or The other thing that really helped me make that decision was doing a professional experience where I was working mostly with archives and feeling very cut off from communities, even in a position that had way more like working with community groups than most archival positions. And in public libraries, like even in like a very traditional public library setting, like you're working with people a lot, mm-hmm. like very regularly. Mm-hmm. If, you know, even if you're like very traditional, like on a reference desk, answering questions kind of thing, like you're, you're interacting with people and you're used to people asking questions and encouraging people to ask questions and think about things in different ways. Um, whereas I felt like in the archives program, it was like the, the professional role is to like, Preserve this piece of paper. Preserve this piece of paper and force <laughs> other people to to be confused to try and figure out what they want to do. Yeah, just, there wasn't a lot of consideration of really, like there was like, where did it come from? But also when, like there's so many different ways of generating a documentary heritage. And um, it, it seemed like the way at least our archives program was formed, like it worked for, you know, maybe certain institutions, but the world isn't one government institution. But anyway. Which is why it's really cool to hear that your like instructors were both POC and that you're getting encouragement to ask those questions and like talk about capitalism, talk about white supremacy, talk about how to build spaces that are positive and inclusive for trans people. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, 
and y'all are yeah y'all just add to the list of people who are like are you serious did you talk about this like i actually took like pictures of the slides and sent them to coworkers. I'm like can you believe this like this is actually in a lecture like we're having this conversation and yeah and really even pushing back so one class too we were talking about um just like reference service you know the, the questions like what would you do if someone came up and asked you like how to build an atomic bomb like that basic like how would you operate with that question and of course here i am i'm the oddball like i'm just i'm like you answer the question you give them the information like no average person could just build an atomic bomb. Like they're just curious. So you give them the information. <laughs> but people in the but people in the class were like, oh, that's dangerous and you should be scared. No, it didn't really occur to me how much I keep forgetting that people come from a lot of fear and that they project that fear on so many other people. And my one of my professors gave some pushback and been like, it's your job as a librarian to like support people's curiosity and help support them find things. And I was because and I actually got on the blog post, I got a lot of pushback from people being like, you shouldn't just give out information willy nilly and data. And I'm like, we're starting to be librarians. Is this seriously like what you're coming at? You're trying to control the information instead of giving people the information. So I have to say there still aren't those people in my classes, but my professors have been giving really, I feel like been really pushing back on that fear of othering people. Yeah, just in general. And it's been really refreshing. So I hope this is part of the continuation of the rest of my program because I still have a year and a half left. But I will keep y'all up to date as I head along. <laughs> that sounds like, like you're starting off really well, at least. In the yeah, end. thank you. I'm, I'm happy with my decision. I'm just like, this is this is where I want to be. And I also feel like I work in um, I work in a place where we can ask those questions, too. I feel like I have really supportive staff. Um, in the area that I work at, who was constantly questioning, like, how are we really fulfilling the mission of being librarians and being a public library? And how are we really encouraging curiosity, encouraging question asking, like what you were talking about, Allison? Like, that's so I do see that. I do see that, um, going back to what you were saying, Allison, as a big difference between archives and public librarianship. I saw that too when I started volunteering and trying to work with groups. I'm just like, I can't, if I can't ask you questions, I can't be here. Like, I just, yeah. And then people are like, we don't understand. And I'm like, I'm a community organizer. This is not how I roll. This is not who I am. Can you talk more about this kind of support that you've been receiving in the workplace and at school? Like, how has that really helped you and, like, uplifted your work? Oh, that has been so important. I mean, when you think about the relationships you have at work, I mean, I'm spending 40 hours a week with people. If I didn't have their support, I wouldn't be able to get the work done, which I think kind of maybe speaks to, um, Allison, what you were saying at your library with community-led initiatives. If staff isn't behind it, like nothing's going to happen. Like staff has to be 100% behind it or nothing's going to happen because you need that support. Like this is, this is a lot of emotional work. Like this kind of work is, it's a labor of love. It's a labor of just like working with community to give birth to like these wonderful ideas and actions. And it's very political. It can be emotionally exhausting. Like facilitation is a very exhausting act, like to hold space for people and hold emotion for people. So really having supporting staff who understand that and understand how emotional this work is. Um, and who are willing to be in it with you, like to stand in 
space with community and all fight for the same thing. Like that's a lot. It's very important. So I think I've just been really lucky and they, I could not do the work if it wasn't for staff supporting me. Very cool. Um, We've, we've, we've touched on white supremacy a couple times, I guess, come up Mm -hmm. with archive stuff, um, the history of like libraries in Philly. Yeah. A lot of Carnegie libraries, lots. I'm in one right now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and uh, and Karen also shared with me that shared with me this piece that uh, I guess you two read for your um, course. Yeah. So for Andre and I, we took uh, community archives and digital cultural memory with mm-hmm. um, Nina Visky through the Rare Book School in June 2019, and one of the first readings was Yusuf Omowali's piece. We already are. And I remember you you talking at length about, you know, how important this piece was to you. Yeah. Could you talk about that again now for us? Yes, yes. So, um, well, first of all, that reading list from that class, I've shared that with so many people. That reading list yeah. was, like, life-changing. Because <laughs> even there's that other, it was even that other one, um, Lady Bountiful by Michelle Coswell. Hello, it's me again from editing. The article that Andrea is talking about is called The Legacy of Lady Bountiful, White Women in the Library. Um, And it's by Gina Schlesselman-Tarango. Michelle Caswell did not write that one, but she was also featured many times in the reading list. Oh, I've shared that with so many people. I'm just like, white supremacy, white women in the library. This is your thing. Like, this is your issue. But um, we already are by Yusuf Amawali. And I do, I read it constantly. And I love that it's, it's a treatise and a list of demands, which I think is so powerful. I don't think I've read, I've read quite a few articles or blog posts by black archivists talking about the level of white supremacy in the system, but I've yet to read one that was just like, this is a list of things that we can do to actually really change how we as black people view ourselves in the archive, which I thought was really interesting. And also the first real thing I read about white supremacy, just pretty much in librarianship, that really talked about refusing and like really the power of saying no and I'm not going to engage, which is also one of my favorite things that I've been really working on personally. What hit me the most was that there's so many things. It's the refusal to acknowledge that white people say that we're not in the archives when we are. It's about whose archives are you talking about? Like, how dare you erase me from my own history? And how diversity and inclusion is very much used, I feel like, by like a lot of white academics. I feel like a lot of white academics use diversity and inclusion as a tool to really, to not talk about the real issues of anti-blackness and institutional racism. So it's, it's almost like a diversion, like, oh, let's talk about equity and inclusion. And I'm like, no, let's talk about me being here and existing, but you not wanting me to exist. Like that's the real conversation. Um, so, that, so that article is just, it's beautiful to me. I read it all the time. And even I quote it, like one of my favorite quotes from it is acknowledging people who are not chosen by imperialism. You know, like, I I will say this, I'm sure I'll get lots of hate back for it, but like acknowledging people who are not the Beyonce's and Jay-Z's, right? Who are people who are not chosen as passing enough to be accepted into white culture. It's like, how do we, as people working to support memory institutions, 
tell our stories and like keep our stories and preserve our stories of people who are outside of the white gaze of black people who do not fit into this idea of blackness that white people have constructed. So I said that article is just so powerful talking about as we ourselves, we have the strength and we have the talent and we have the knowledge for ourselves and living outside of the white gaze, which I don't feel like a lot of black archivists are really talking about. I feel like a lot of black archivists are talking about the experience fully in the white gaze and not thinking about the future and who we are and what is possible living outside of whiteness, which I think very much goes into Afrofuturism of thinking about who are we outside of whiteness. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I hope that, yeah, I don't know how I, it's it's so emotional to me. I'm like, how to explain how important that article is, but like that article solidified my love of community archives and how important it is. And I remember reading that before I decided to drop the archives focus. So Clarion has it where I could have an MLIS and an archives focus in a two-year, 36-hour program. And I decided to just drop it because I'm like, I am refusing to engage with that level of white supremacy. I am choosing to engage with Blackness and our lives outside of the white gaze. And that article was a big part of me dropping that. Thank you. We'll link to it so mm-hmm. people can uh, be still. Oh, please. I'm like, I, I started with everybody. I'm like, read this. It's amazing. It's life changing. It's my treatise. Like, here, read this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think people are going to really love that. Yeah. Andrea mentioned to Allison and I that she's working on a grassroots oral history project and will be working on an IMLS, which stands for Institute of Museum and Library Studies Memory Lab in January. Um, and the audio was kind of wonky, so we're recording here. I strongly believe the universe pulls us and pushes us in the path that we need to be on. So. IMLS has this grant, it's a memory lab grant, where they actually will provide a public library with support and building a digitization center that's open and free to all. So I knew that I was going to get the tools and the training that I wanted in digitizing and creating a memory lab, like, you know, it's archives for the people. That's what it is, preservation and archives completely for the people. So um, it's coming to the main library I work at. Actually, in this room I'm sitting at is where we're going to have the memory lab. So we are asked in the next month, we're going to ask for um, donations to help us convert VHS tapes, scan documents and pictures of. And I really want to focus on black people in the southwest area of Philadelphia. Gentrification is coming from the universities that are just north of here. So there's UPenn and Drexel University, and they're heavily gentrifying um, West Philadelphia, and they're going to be moving into southwest Philadelphia. And so thinking about this huge white supremacist industrialization, academic industrialization that's coming our way. Like, how can we preserve the memories of this neighborhood? So yeah, so I'm actually going to be working with community and doing community engagement to train community members on how to use technology to digitize and keep and preserve their histories, which is beautiful. And that's what I wanted. And that's what I want to do. And I'm like, I don't need to do this white supremacy stuff. I can just do it through this and work completely with community and we can build what's important and vital. So one thing I love about this grant is we're going to spend the first couple of months of next year doing engagement and talking to people and being like, what materials do you have? 
Like, what do we need to get to make sure that we can convert and meet your needs? And what important programming do you want to come out of this in order to help us build it? So we're actually aren't going to start putting it physically together until next summer. So that time that we're allotted to actually dig in deeply to this is like so meaningful. When I saw that with the grant, I'm like, that's the important work. That's the work to actually give us time to dig in, talk to community, see what they want. And then we can try and do our best and build out and support community and what they want and then train them on how to digitize their materials and also train them on how to run it. Like, this is yours. Like, take it, own it, run it, and, like, have, like, your own, like, memory hub and memory center. So it's it's just really powerful. It's the work I want to do, and I'm really excited, and I couldn't be happier to have this at, like, a neighborhood library. Uh, that's awesome. It overlaps really yes. nicely. Yeah, this morning we were interviewing a couple of Métis librarians who work here at UBC, and one of them, Sarah DuPont, has been very involved for a long time with a project called Indigitization, which works with Mm -hmm. mostly First Nations communities around BC to do like similar stuff to what you're talking about, you know. Here are the resources. Here are the resources, workshops taught by First Nations people who do digitization work in a community-based way. And to like build those skills within communities so that it's sustainable and ongoing and, and people have the resources they need to to do that and then and to like control their own materials so that they don't have to yeah. send it off to another institution and put it in the hands of usually settlers. Um, right. So yeah, we can we'll send you a link to their stuff because yeah. there might be useful. They've got some they've got open, accessible training materials and stuff like that. So It's really inspiring. It's really cool. It's really lovely. It's really heartwarming. I feel. Yeah. yeah. Oh, thanks. And to hear it to is. This is but he was thinking yeah. through some of the same stuff that we're so interested in about. Yeah, community libraries, community organizing. Where are they similar? Where are they different? What could we be learning? So thank you so much. I hope we talk again. Yeah. Soon. Oh, thank <laughs> you. I, and this has been really fun. And thank you for making this happen, Karen. I have no, but yeah, this has been really great. And that one podcast where you interviewed your friend who was also doing community organizing and had the library. In China. Yes. Oh my gosh. She is doing like amazing work. I'm like, yeah, that's like my dream would be to have just like one library in Philadelphia, just dedicated to like, yeah, this supporting like community archives and having like community memory like tools accessible to people no matter what that looks like it could be like I don't know like a visual arts room a digitization space like mm. whatever people wanted to make in those space like a general maker spaces I think that would be so lovely and thinking about um, really intimate pieces of Philadelphia history that I think that like the larger archives definitely miss I'd love to create that space So before we go, if anyone wants to reach you or get in touch, are you uh, public on social media or have an email or something? People can. Yeah, I was going to say I'm public on Twitter. My handle is my name. It's A and then Lemoines, L-E-M-O-I-N-S. I talk about random library stuff and currently a lot of stuff about the Mandalorian. It just depends. It's yeah. all over the place on Twitter. But people can happily follow me there. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Great. 
We can be found on Twitter at OrganizingPod. That is organizing with a Z and not an S. Our email is OrganizingIdeasPod at gmail.com. And our website is OrganizingIdeasPod.wordpress.com. Bye-bye. Thank you.